Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. This week's podcast episode proudly brought to you by XL Moto. That's the one-stop motorcycle shop for all your biking needs, whether it's biking clothing, parts for your bike and anything in between. I've just got a an order that's come through that will help me out not only in the UK, but especially when I'm going over to Asia. That's some almost flat pack. They fold about four centimetres flat, some soft panniers that I can just throw over a bike as well as a biking backpack. They've got a huge amount of different stuff. So if you're interested, go and check out the links in the written description below. Let's get down to it. I'll start just with a, a couple of points that I missed over the past week or so. So have a listen to this. This is in relation to the Honda Daxes, the little 125s. This is from Darry. Here we go. Small bore life is so much fun. We've got two grums in our house, his and hers. They have been all over the UK and the Isle of Man TT many times. I've got a Super Duke GT and a Gen 1 Triumph 675 Daytona, both great bikes but the Grom gets the most use. Epic little bikes. I love this. It proves, for one, it proves that small, simple bikes are really just as fun. But another really important point here, the bike that you use most is the one, a lot of the time, you have less worry and concern about. You know, there's a lot to be said for these simple, cheap little bikes because they encourage you to just jump on them. You're not worried. I mean, you're always worried a bit if you drop it. You're not worried if you, you drop it. You're not worried if it gets a little dent, a bit of salt on it. You're not worried if you put 2,000 miles on it in the space of a week because you don't really care about the depreciation of them. They're purely there to just enjoy. I love it. Fantastic. And the next is, oh, this is JB. JB, apologies. I wanted to read this out, actually. Sent over the Instagram channel. Um, from JB, interesting to watch what is happening in the high-end classic car market, Freddie. How will classic bike market, or how will the classic bike market respond to a recession? Uh, JB, this is a really good question. My thoughts, I really, really do believe it, whether it's classic cars or classic motorbikes, I just think they're such a sound investment. I really do. I know I've been banging on now and everyone's bored of it, but probably for the past three weeks about how much I love Land Rover Defenders. And the fascinating thing here, JB, is I really have had a lot of people saying, Freddie, if you're, if you're planning on, you know, on buying a Defender and using it, You've got to be careful because, yes, they could go up in value. They could go up in value. But you're going to be spending so much money in the meantime that just a word of warning. That's, in essence, what people have been saying. Get ready, Freddie, because you are going to have to be opening up your wallet a lot. And any increase you do get on the value of that vehicle, the Defender, will be counteracted by all the money you'll have spent in the meantime. But JB, I know you're getting on something quite different there. That is really, you know, buying a classic car or motorbike and, and really keeping it as a classic. Whereas with the Defender, I'm looking at using it. What about just buying a classic motorbike 
almost as an investment, more than anything else, more than riding it. I rode a BSA Gold Star 1959 with just 16 miles on the clock for a recent video I filmed charting the history of BSA motorcycles. And they were fairly strict, and I don't blame them, 10 miles maximum. I ended up adding two miles to it. I, I was getting filmed riding this BSA Gold Star, and I have to say it was more stressful than pleasurable. But it was right at the start of this video that we filmed about three days ago. Uh, the, the starting sequence is something that I would not be able to do even given three hours. It was so complicated. But it did show, just seeing that bike, how important, especially if you're looking at these classics, how important the mileage is. Very important. Very important to keep it as low as possible with mileage because that has a huge weight on, on the residual values. And I'm kind of going off on a tangent here. So apologies for that, but but it just kind of got me on to the fact that if you're holding on to a vehicle that is a potential future classic in the making, it really does affect how much you use it. If I'm serious, for example, about looking at a Defender as a, a, a real investment, do I want to be adding proper mileage onto it? And then does that take away from the fact that it can be enjoyable as a hobby proposition, you really do almost have to look at investment vehicles and and rideable fun vehicles or drivable fun vehicles as two completely separate propositions. I really have started to believe this. So if I were in the market, JB, for a classic motorbike, for example, an investment, and I'm very curious about all of your opinions on this. If I go and buy a high-end classic motorcycle that I think will appreciate in value, I wouldn't ride it. I would buy it, I would keep it locked up, and I would have it more as a collector's item. And I know a lot of people would very strongly disagree because we need to see these vehicles on the road. I see it more as an, uh, an investment as opposed to a motorcycle. I would see it uh, just as something to be kept, to be held onto as a piece of history, where the mileage, where the mileage, where the value can appreciate and I very strongly believe, JB, that motorcycles, they will hold their value and they will continue to go up. Classic motorcycles, regardless of recession or not, their values will keep on going up and up and up. And I would say it's an incredibly good place to put your money, classic cars and motorbikes. I think the future upcoming electrification, the only thing for me that will do to values of classic cars and motorbikes is increase it. The only thing. Because no one's buying a classic vehicle in reality to do much mileage on at all, if any. So I think that's only going to increase the value. They're just going to go up and up and up. And as we move into electrification, that character that we know it, that will be gone. So we're going to be looking even more fondly at these classic vehicles. Just like yours, JB. Just like your... God, I've forgotten the name. Your, your incredible Yamaha you've got. We're going to be looking more and more fondly on that. I mean, you know, these huge Yamaha 1700cc muscle bikes, V-twins. I've totally forgotten the name. Apologies. Apologies. You all know what I'm talking about, these huge ones. We're, God, we're going to look at them fondly. We're going to look back when electrification's here. We're riding around on electric bikes in disbelief at the kind of incredible machinery there was when we were allowed to ride petrol vehicles, petrol motorbikes. 
it's a sure fire place to keep your money in and let the values go up and up and up. But I really do think we're going to just be using them, JB, just as a little bit of history to lock away. Fascinated to hear your thoughts. There will be people, I'm sure, who strongly agree and disagree. So all welcome. Right. This is from this is from Nick Moto UK. Nick, I had to put this almost right up to the top because I found this a fascinating read. Uh, Nick Moto UK, he just hit 10,000 subscribers on YouTube, so a huge congrats on that. I begin. Hi, Freddie. And this really is interesting, so have a listen to this. Hi, Freddie. Following on from all the chat regarding financing a motorcycle, I have a friend who last year bought a KTM 1290 Super Duke R. He has owned the bike for the last seven months now and had no end of troubles from electrical issues to leaking water hoses, just to name a few. When he bought the motorcycle, he financed the bike. And while the bike has been back to the KTM dealer each time and the problems have been fixed, a few have reappeared time again. Long story short, he's had enough as it's his only mode of transport and he's been without the bike, sometimes for weeks at a time, while the dealer figures out what's wrong and tries to fix it. He now wants to give the bike back and why you would think it may be straightforward because the bike is, uh, and why you think it may be straightforward, because the bike is financed, his fight now is with the finance company who refused to do anything and he has now taken th things up with the financial ombudsman, which they say is a four-month waiting list, even to start the case. Basically, he's stuck with a bike he doesn't want, as he's had too many issues with, and now he's in the position of financial loss and pulling his hair out daily. Interesting to hear, as the dealer says, they cannot do anything as the bike's on finance and it's between him and them. Maybe this one, uh, maybe this is one to be wary of when financing a motorcycle or car. Well, Nick, this was just, just a fascinating read that the problems that can occur from financing. And of course, bear in mind anyone who's, who's fairly new to the podcast, I'm completely not against financing. I financed before and I would definitely finance in the future if needed. But this is an eye-opening wake-up call, some of the issues that can happen. If we focus on the first thing, first of all, because I find this really annoying, Nick. Not just motorbikes, cars, when new vehicles are so unreliable. It infuriates me. New vehicles should be spot-on reliable completely spot on. I find it completely unacceptable that they're so unreliable. I know I talk about Land Rovers and things like that. Have a look if we're looking at cars. Always the least reliable vehicles are big Land Rover 4x4s. But have a look a bit closer. The least reliable cars are almost always tech fests, whether it's the German cars, which are all tech fests, and the electronics are atrocious. The British cars, always tech fests, and the electronics are atrocious. The reliable little cars are the simple basic cars. And I'll, I'll give the Japanese vehicles a complete pass here because they seem to be the only nationality that actually know how to make electronics properly. The only ones. 
all of the others, whether it's the Brits or the Germans or the, the Austrians with KTMs, completely useless with electrics. It, it completely infuriates me. And the more complicated a vehicle is, whether it's a motorbike or whether it's a car, all it means there's infinitely more to go wrong and technology ages incredibly badly, incredibly badly. And the fact that KTM have held on to this vehicle, this motorbike, sometimes for weeks at a time on a brand new bike that should be completely simple to fix and to put right. And when they plug in their diagnostics machines, they should instantly be able to see what the issue is. Oh, it infuriates me really does, Nick. That's my rant over. And it's not specifically at KTM because I know they make some great bikes. It can happen to a lot of different bike companies. But my Lord, if the bike is so complicated that even the main dealers struggling to understand what's wrong with the brand new bike, alarm bells ringing, that that bike is just too damn complicated. Again, I welcome your thoughts. I move on. Hi, Freddie. In response to Andy, who mentioned his spill, I'd like to say this. Last week, the dreaded happened. I was preparing for a morning ride and went to the petrol station to fill up. It was a Sunday, so very quiet on the roads. On turning into the station, I failed to see a small patch of diesel on the road. It was enough to make me and the bike part ways. I was sprawled on the floor and the bike slid away, uh, slid slightly away from me. It was highly embarrassing as it all happened at about 10 miles an hour. Luckily, my crash protectors took the brunt and I got away. <laughs> I got away. I know the feeling. Got away with just a bend to the rear brake pedal. As you know, I've not long had the bike and it really did lay quite heavily on my mind. I do suffer with mental health and it's one of the reasons I got into biking back in 2010. I know how Andy feels. My confidence immediately vanished, my pride wounded and a sense of dread filled me. I nearly picked the bike up and went home, but I managed to strengthen my resolve, fill up with fuel and go to meet my friend for a ride out. This did take some doing, and I rode very gingerly out of the coffee shop, even thinking I may sell the bike. However, once I got there, had a coffee, discussed the incident, I started to realize that accidents happen because they are accidents. I reasoned with the event. I hadn't been doing anything stupid. I just was human and unlucky. The ride back was so much better with confidence building all the way. I'm not 100% back, but I will learn from it, even with 12 years of experience. So for Andy, just put it behind you. No one got hurt. The bike isn't mortally wounded. Keep on biking. I hope this helps, as this is what biking's all about, that support community. Sean, just fantastic. You're spot on. Thank you so much for sharing that. Wise words. And it shows, Sean, we've been riding a similar amount of time, you and I, and you're spot on. You could have been riding for 10 years, 20 years, or just passed your test yesterday. These things can happen to anyone. The amount of time still, when I'm, I'm out filming a video, Monica's filming me, and I start up the bike, and I, I realize it, I've still got the center stand down or something like that, so it won't start. Uh, and then I click it down into first gear and it stalls because the center stands down all the time, all the time doing this. I'll never learn. So thank you for that, Sean. Uh, I move on to Nick. Freddie, 
What are your thoughts of a two into one exhaust for twins, twin engine motorbikes? I'm thinking of this for my interceptor. Tech do a reasonably priced one. I know you have a two into one for your Bonneville. Would you replace with the same or would you go for separate exhausts? All the best, Nick. Yeah, Nick, my Bonneville, it, I think it comes as standard with a twin exhaust, one on either side. But I think, as you, you probably know from, from the YouTube video a few months ago, my bike was written off and my guess is the exhausts got too badly damaged to, to repair. So someone put on a single-sided exhaust onto my bike. The problem with that is that whoever put it on there didn't properly fit the baffle and the baffle is loose and it just rattles and my lord it annoys me it's just the most disgustingly embarrassing sound i hate it so i've been considering going back to the original twin exhausts i may just try and take it to a mechanic and see if they can stop the rattle from that exhaust i've taken it to one mechanic before they did fix it, but then the rattle came back annoyingly. So I need to see if, if anyone else can figure it out. So to answer your question, I actually, in general, I probably prefer a single-sided exhaust. And the reason for that is because it halves weight. You could probably save about 10 kilos, potentially. That's a wild guess on having a single-sided exhaust compared to the big original twin exhausts. And I do know on the interceptors, those twin exhausts, they're for one big, they also are quite wide as well, so they increase the width of the interceptor, especially when parking, putting on on the side stand. And they will add a gigantic amount of weight. So in general, if I had to pick, I would choose a single-sided exhaust because it does save on weight. Although I do love the look of a twin-sided exhaust. It gives that, uh, that I've completely forgotten the word, but where it looks the same on both sides, the symmetry. It, it gives a beautiful symmetry to the bike. So I really like the look of a twin-sided exhaust. But for practicality, weight reduction, things like this, and you know, it's one less thing that could get dented, for example, having a single-sided exhaust. Most common sense leads me down to a single-sided. And I do know, Nick, that tech have a very good reputation for exhausts. So I would say you're in the right place with tech. In short, yes, I, I, I would keep a single-sided exhaust for the Bonneville. If I had to pick, Two exhausts or one, I would go with one. I move on. Marius. Marius from Ireland. Fantastic. Freddie, I'm a 32-year-old from Ireland and I'm currently recovering after my first bike crash where I sustained some, uh, some injuries like fractures on both hands. The bike, a Meteor 350, was written off. And my question is, considering, considering I had no fault in the accident, how to make my close ones, like my girlfriend and family, have confidence in me riding again. I love motorcycles and I have no fear in getting back riding. Maris. Maris, this, this is a tricky one. I will speak. I will speak only from my personal experience here and not personal experience having crashed. So I just have a sip of wine. This is the best advice I can give. And again, I welcome other people joining in. Selfishness. 
is my advice. I, uh, I remember probably 10 years ago or so, um, I had a, a girlfriend from Italy. She was seriously unkeen on me, uh, on me riding. And I said, it, it just, I'm so sorry, but it doesn't matter doesn't matter. I want to ride and I've only got one life and I'm so sorry that it, it may hurt you, but it's something I want to do and I know, I know what will happen. I'll look back on my deathbed when I'm 80 or something, if I'm lucky enough to get that far, and I'll be angry at myself for not riding because it's my life and I want to make sure I'm doing everything possible that makes me happy. And that is nearly always my argument for for doing something I want. How will I feel? Sounds almost morbid. How will I feel on my deathbed if I haven't done everything I wanted to? Because I need to squeeze in all the joy I can into one life. And I don't want to feel like I've missed out on anything at all. Another thing with this, <laughs> I'll bring Monica into this. Because Monica, when I met her, she's fairly anti-biking. The only difference with Monica is I was biking when I met her, so she didn't have a leg to stand on. She's only ever known me when biking. You can't stop someone biking if you met them when they were biking. Uh, and she was initially extremely, extremely wary, didn't want anything to do with it. But then, you know, probably, probably about six months after we first met, she'd, she'd jump on the bike, you know, go for a coffee and things like that. Uh, and it didn't take her long to jump on the bike for some fairly long trips. But the funny thing about this is that uh, for Monica, her partner, her partner back in Lithuania when she lived in Lithuania, he hugely wanted a motorbike. He was desperate for a motorbike, Monica tells me. And Monica said, absolutely no way. You get a motorbike, that's it, we're over. You are not getting a motorbike. So he didn't get a motorbike. And we always have a laugh with this, Monica and I, because if he ever would watch a video now on YouTube and see Monica very happily being pillion, being ridden around the place in lots of different countries, he'd probably flip out at the TV because the double standards is completely atrocious. And the reason I say that, Maris, sometimes you do just have to look out for yourself and accept maybe it's a selfish decision, but the only thing we can do often is look out for ourselves. And that is probably ludicrously selfish, but I honestly believe it. I hope that's in some way helped. And <laughs> I move on. Maris, let me know what happens. I move on to Dave. Afternoon, Freddie. With regards to your most recent episode, an A2 restriction or not. Ah, okay. Okay. This is Dave. And I will not say Dave's second name, but Dave is a policeman. So have a listen to his opinion on this. With regards to your most recent episode, an A2 restriction, or not, as may be desired by the rider at their own risk, I appreciate you very much left it in the hands of the individual rider, but I feel professionally compelled to drive home that the risk owned by the A2 license holder who chooses not to restrict their bike and them to perhaps chance their luck would be akin to telling someone... <laughs> to telling someone with no license at all and no insurance at all to ride on the roads. The offences being committed would still fall under a Section 87 Road Traffic Act. Driving, without the uh, driving out with the terms of your license and 143RTA. Driving out 
with the terms of insurance to cover for third party risks. Police officers can make inquiries with databases with lawful authority to establish your license restrictions, date you passed your test, and with the insurance company to establish any declaration you did or didn't make. And potentially, should the officer have grounds to suspect an offence, could look to seize the vehicle as used in connection with a crime in order for examination. Whilst I wouldn't anticipate this level of action on a regular occurrence, it seems highly unnecessary to a legitimate license holder to take this risk versus the cost of a restriction on the bike to comply with A2. We want to keep each other as safe as we can on the roads, riders, drivers and pedestrians. And we all have a personal responsibility for the greater good. Hot fuzz film reference given that police chat. Hope this reinforces our individual responsibilities rather than sounding preachy. All the best, Dave. Dave, thank you so much for sending that over. Uh, an extremely level-headed um, educated response from someone who very clearly understands the risks involved. So thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, and of course, you're bang on. I move on to John. Freddie, are you the latest podcast? Yep, that guy's right. Counter steering is the way forward, or rather left and right. It's certainly the quickest way of steering a bike. It reacts immediately. So sorry, I forgot to save your name. But there, that's to the counter-steering argument. The best way to often, you know, really get the bike from left to right when you're, you're going through those, those flowing bends, especially when you've got a bit more speed on the bike. So thank you for sharing that. Moving on to John, Freddie. I don't have a bike license. I ride a Honda Camino on grandfather rights. I'm now inspired to get my license at the grand old age of 52 and I cannot wait. My choice of bike when I do eventually pass will be a Royal Enfield Continental GT650 Chrome Edition. What do you think? Oh, John, that's, that's just fantastic. You know, the amount of bikers, it's fascinating, who, who want to get into biking because of the Royal Enfield Continental GT650 is, is really eye-opening. It just goes to show... Firstly, the appeal of the Continental GT, but secondly, how many people are Royal Enfield getting into biking by making genuinely cool, desirable, attainable bikes? They're changing biking. It's fantastic. And John, thank you for the pics of the Honda Camino. I had no idea about these bikes. They're fantastic. And that leads me on to something because I posted on Instagram, the Instagram... Uh, Freedom Machines podcast account of, of John and a couple of his friends, Honda Caminos, little 50cc bikes. I think they were made in Belgium. I don't have it in front of me, but I think 1976 to 1991. I had a lot of response come in from these, John, and I'll just share one of them. Uh, this is from Lee. Lee sent in a reply to seeing your Caminos. And he said, Freddie, I've just restored a Camino too. It's a 1981 model. Color scheme is in homage to the JPS Lotus with regards Lee. And let me just open up this pic. I'll make sure I share this pic on the Instagram and Facebook account so you can have a look. Just the most beautifully elegant bike. 
let me try and describe it. Think a bicycle mixed with a Honda Cub and you're going to be pretty much bang on there. Beautiful black bike with chrome front and rear mudguard but with a lovely bronze accent just at the front of the frame with the words Honda in really retro writing. Little number plate just attached to the back of the rear mudguard and it genuinely looks like a, a tiny a, t a bicycle with with an engine. It almost looks like it could be an electric bike from this side or from the left hand side. Stunningly elegant little thing just with one little mirror on the right hand, the right hand side of the handlebar. I'll make sure I get that on, on Instagram and Facebook because that really is just stunning. And and this was done by by Lee. He restored it himself. Yeah, restored it himself. That's the joy about the simple bikes as well. They do lend themselves to being able to be restored, you know, by, by owners themselves. The more complicated the bike, and this isn't with regards to electrics, it's if you look at the BSA Gold Stars from the 50s, much, much more complicated, infinitely more com complicated. But if you get one of these, a little bike like a Camino or Honda Cub, they can be they can be upgraded they can be restored by much higher percentage of people because of the beautiful simplicity thank you for that lee i move on um person chose to stay anonymous which is absolutely fine and this comes in hello freddie a little delayed as it was a podcast or two ago now but you mentioned from a guy considering a suzuki sv650 with the idea to eventually upgrade to a Triumph Street Triple. So to have that Suzuki SV650 as an almost middle bike on his step up to the dream bike of a Triumph Street Triple. Well, I continue. I bought a Suzuki SV650S in the hope of upgrading to a Kawasaki ZX6R in a year or two. I was very nearly killed in a no-fault accident. Your continuing message of get what you can, if you can, applies here, as all bikes are vulnerable to others on the road, and it's easy to have an accident on the bike you didn't really want. That may prevent you from ever owning the one you really did want. I know this is a little grim, but it's worth considering. Fortunately, I may get on a bike again as healing well for the most part. And if I do, I'll be going straight to my dream Kawasaki ZX6R. Uh, just thank you for sending that over. It's fantastic. I love the attitude. Straight back onto the Kawasaki. Brilliant. And there it is. You know, a lot of the time, things are sometimes out of our control, so it's best just to go for the bike we want. So sorry to hear about your crash, but delighted that you're on the mend, not just physically, but I can see here just from reading, you know, mentally already, you know, considering potentially getting that dream bike once you're fully healed. So sending you all my very, very best. I move on. Freddie. I've been a rider for many years and the older I get, the more I'm apt to gear up for the fullest, uh, gear up to the fullest for safety. As a kid, excuse me, as a kid, 
I mainly rode dirt bikes, and till this day, living in the Sierra Mountains in California, I still ride dirt bikes and dress for the crash. On the street, I ride a 2019 Kawasaki W800 Cafe, and I love it. I love the retro styling, dependability, quality, and the rider stance. My wife and I recently purchased a beach house in Florida, and I wanted to have a motorcycle there as well. And as a typical red-blooded man that likes variety, I couldn't get the same bike there. I started looking for different models from different companies, and after hearing your passion for Triumph and Royal Enfield, I decided to look at both. I considered the T120 or Thruxton, but I ended up choosing the Royal Enfield Continental, here we go again, Royal Enfield Continental GT. I love the cafe look and I enjoy the more aggressive riding stance. And at under $7,000 tax and license, I just couldn't go wrong. And I wouldn't be that upset if and when I get a nick or a scratch and here's me butting in. Bang on, this is exactly why these cheap bikes are great. It's spot on. And again, Royal Enfield Continental GT, it pops up again, these bikes. I continue. I love my GT. I've put around 2,000 miles on it, and I love it more with every mile. Now the interesting part. I live in both California and Florida, and I've heard you talk about the strange tact that each state in the US has, their own laws concerning motorcycles. In California, there's a strict helmet law, and lane splitting is legal. For myself, I think of a helmet is part safety and also part the look. If you have a retro bike, it's only appropriate to wear the appropriately styled headgear. Lane splitting in California is legal in traffic under 30 miles an hour and is a must with our crowded roads and non-stop in-go city traffic. I'm always worried about being rear-ended and lane splitting is one way of avoiding that. I think most people in California are more courteous to riders and move out of their way expecting motorcycles to lane split. In Florida, however, laws are lax compared to California, but it is illegal to lane split. Florida has a strange law regarding helmets. The way it reads is this. If you have insurance for you and your bike, you don't need to wear a helmet. But if you don't have insurance, you must wear a helmet. I'm not sure how they enforce this. Most riders wear a helmet in Florida, but I've noticed that most Harley riders go without. My dad was a Harley rider, and there's a persona of toughness that he liked to display. And I think that may be the case here. I'd love to know your thoughts, Baron. Baron, this is just fascinating reading. Fascinating. It always surprises me that there are still places in the US where you don't have to wear a helmet. And that that insurance thing where you can wear no helmet so long as you're insured is just so interesting. And and almost, I don't know the right word to say for it, but almost the, the clash in ideologies where you can't lane split, um, and I'm assuming you're not allowed to lane split because it's 
in theory, maybe the argument is that it's too dangerous, yet you don't have to wear a helmet. So lane splitting is too dangerous, so it's illegal, but wearing a helmet is okay. Oh, not wearing a helmet, sorry, not wearing a helmet is okay. It's, it's just, it's so interesting. So, so interesting. Um, with regards to toughness, perceived toughness, not wearing a helmet, not wearing riding gear in general. It's funny because the US, of course, US and Harley Davidson's go hand in hand. And for that cool image of Harley Davidson's USA, a lot of the time the protective gear is minimal. A lot of the time, when you know, at least when you see it from the outside world, it's a, a black leather vest, a vest, not a jacket, but just a vest, no protection, but just a black leather vest. A lot of the time, no helmet at all. It's that complete freedom on a Harley Davidson. And you'll get two completely different schools of thought here, Baron. I'm sure, I'm sure most will agree. One half saying that is just stupidity, absolute stupidity wearing no biking gear. And the others that are probably slightly not such a loud mine, probably a minority, but will think, my Lord, that's actually quite cool. Maybe I wouldn't specifically ride without a helmet, but that that is quite a cool look. I have to say, and it's quite embarrassing, I always look at the American Harley riders, often with almost no protective gear, and I think, God, that's quite cool. I, I don't know why. I know it's pathetic that I think like that. I know it is, and it makes no sense, but it's just that, I don't know if it's that ultimate freedom or that tough guy persona shown, but I do love the idea, maybe helmet, I, I think, okay, helmet I'd wear. I'll get in too much trouble if I say not helmet. Helmet I would wear, but it's something quite free and liberating about wearing no riding gear at all, although... Of course, it makes no sense at all. But yes, a lot would probably be that, uh, that, that tough persona. Although there's also a freedom in wearing no gear. But again, that doesn't make any sense from a, a common sense point of view. But in, certainly in Europe, Baron, absolutely, there's nothing like that. Any country, specifically in the EU, I'm sure in Europe, uh, helmet is is without question a law full stop. There's nowhere in Europe where you don't have to wear that. In fact, I think they may even be pushing it more. I think I heard in France they want to try and make it a legal requirement that you may have to wear some specific biking gear as well as a helmet, such as gloves. So things are changing, possibly in a few countries in Europe, but certainly, certainly helmets are essential absolutely everywhere. I know a lot of the time, if you watch some music videos, things like that, you'll get the classic American you know, music video and you'll have people in no, no protective gear, Harley Davidson, not even a helmet. Yeah, it's that, it's that American lifestyle dream. Uh, I get sucked into it. I do. I can't lie. Baron, great to hear from you from the US and happy riding on that, that Kawasakian. That Royal Enfield, I can imagine the Royal Enfield over in Florida. And oh, and then in California to have the Kawasaki. Just what a sight, what a thought. I move on. Oh God, it's rambling there, apologies. Freddie, moving on, Freddie. I recently stumbled across 
Uh, an old study. Oh, here we go. This is, oh, I've got two left, but this is interesting. Freddie, I recently stumbled across, uh, stumbled across an old study by a Belgian research firm. Here's a quote from the articles. A study conducted by Belgium research firm Transport and Mobility Leuven in 2011 found that within the population of their study, if 10% of car owners switched to motorcycles, that time loss for all road users due to congestion would reduce by 40%. This amounts to 15,000 hours or a net benefit of 350,000 euros a day. In addition, emissions would be cut by 6% through these car owners switching to motorcycles, creating a clear societal benefit for allowing motorcyclists to filter and encourage the population to take up motorcycling particularly as a means of commuting. Obviously, this study is quite old, but it does go to show how much an impact motorcycles can have versus a car for emissions and congestion. The population of Belgium in 2023 is approximately 12 million, whereas the UK is 69 million. Just imagine how much a difference incentivized schemes could make if they're even if they even lured one percent of the population into bike ownership instead of a car. Anyway, I'm rambling. I'd love to hear anyone else's thoughts, and if they could make an incentive scheme, what would that be? I always think this, Cal. Thanks for sending that through. That's fascinating reading that it can make sense on every level from an environmental level to a congestion level individuals saving time on a daily basis cities being less clogged up i i've got a few ideas cal that come to the top of my mind let's say for london because i'm experienced commuting in london first off most bus lanes in london motorbikes can ride in most but not all. And it always baffles me that some bus lanes in London you're not allowed to ride in as a motorbiker. Why would a biker not be allowed to use a bus lane? It clears up the middle of the road so bikers don't have to filter between traffic. Bus lanes are usually 90% empty so bikers can just quickly whiz through. And then if there is a bus and a biker can easily either wait, either wait for the bus or just whiz round the bus with complete ease and safety. So that is one way that it can be infinitely more appealing. Then bike parking in Barcelona, for example, there's motorbike parking absolutely everywhere. It's so bike friendly. It's free parking and it's everywhere. And then the last point I would make, and this isn't specifically for biking, this is just in general. We, and this is, this is almost not related to biking, but we have got to get in the UK some police on the beat because we need some huge disincentives to stop this ludicrous amount of motorcycle crime in London and further afield in the UK in general as well, because it is completely out of control. 
Whether it's stabbings, not bike related, or motorcycle theft, it is an absolute disgrace. Something has to be done because it's feeling lawless. People have to be able to trust that they can ride their bike into the city and leave it and not have it robbed. I go to Barcelona, probably 5% of motorbikes or scooters are locked up with uh, some kind of padlock. 95%, they're just left there and there are thousands of them everywhere on the street and people use them because they know they're not going to get stolen. Yes, you may hear the occasional motorbike gets stolen in Barcelona. I'm not saying they're immune to it, but the fact is there are tens of thousands of motorbikes parked up all over the city in Barcelona and they can all park them up safely or with a clear mind going to work that their bike isn't going to get stolen. Things must change in the UK in that respect. Somehow, the, and I don't know the uh, uh, economics well enough, but there've got to be, there's got to be a far, far stronger police presence on the road. Things have got to change, and that's a societal change, or that's a government change, or something has to change in order to increase our, you know, the community, increase our trust that we can actually go out and use stuff. And it's not just for bikes. It's the same if someone goes out and wears a Rolex. Well, there's a chance you're going to get mugged for that Rolex if you're in London, for example. I was in Bury St. Edmunds today. A lovely, lovely little old town in England. Yeah, and I would never have any concern about parking a bike up. And I know you can't compare it specifically to London. But, but my dad, and I welcome anyone's thoughts here. My dad remembers when he was younger... Uh, growing up, you, you would know the local policeman on first name terms. You would know him. He'd always be wandering around the streets, always. And people would deeply respect the policeman. They would know, you know, if he's around, you, you've got to make sure you're, you're on your game. You're, you know, you're top level. You're not messing around. You know, they'd be respected. Would they be feared? I don't know. But they'd certainly be really respected. I don't know what's happened now, but... Is it realistic to expect that you can still have community police officers like that? Or is that just complete madness to expect that with populations booming? I don't know, but I hope something changes so trust can be built in, that you can use your bikes and really trust it. Welcome all thoughts on that. Here goes to the final one from Zane. Freddie, I wrote to the podcast, I believe in October last year, at this time, I was thinking of purchasing a new Royal Enfield Classic 350 to go alongside my Harley-Davidson Sportster Iron. About a week after that episode aired, I went to the dealership and secured a Royal Enfield Classic 350 in the very classic-looking halcyon black colourway. Let me interject. That is the most stunning colour I think I've ever seen on a motorbike. If I buy a Classic 350, and I may, I would go for that. I continue. I have to say that owning this bike has been an absolute revelation and it's exceeded all expectations. It's effortless fun, handles like a dream and has that great Enfield sound. So much so that it's put me in a position I didn't expect. My dream bike was always the Harley-Davidson for its rawness and everything that comes with it. 
But the majority of my riding is in the Lake District, around small country lanes exploring small villages and mountain passes when going for a ride. And when going for a ride, I always seem to gravitate towards the Enfield due to its characterful handling and feel-good factor. And I'm in the position where I'm thinking, what does the Harley provide for me that the Enfield doesn't? aside from the mean looks and the bigger bike mentality. And I've been pondering this, and I've decided to put the Harley up for sale on Facebook Marketplace, something I didn't think would ever happen. I thought this, may, uh, I thought this insight may be of interest to you and your listeners. Best wishes, Zane. It's fascinating, Zane. Really, really fascinating how how perceptions of what we think is our ultimate dream bike can sometimes change and the fact that it can sometimes take a significant amount of time for us to get our head around that. I did the same with my Triumph Speed Triple thinking I needed total power, super naked. It took me a long time to realise and to come to terms with the fact I didn't need that. And to go from the Harley-Davidson to what many may assume or consider a lesser bike, purely in terms of engine size and price when new, is fascinating. But I get it 100%. That Enfield Classic 350 is one of the best bikes I've ever ridden, just purely from a feel-good point of view. I'll end it there. Zane, thank you so much. Thank you so much, everyone, to lis- oh, for listening. If you have any thoughts, any opinions, uh, it is, I'll include all of the details for Facebook and the Instagram pages. Please do give them a follow because I'll often share pictures from, from listeners' bikes and other stories they may have that I don't get a chance to share on the podcasts. Also, the email, you can just email directly in to hi at thefreedommachines.com and you can also get in touch on the website freddydobs.com uh, and slash podcast, and then you can just send me a message directly through the website. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this week's episode. I hope you all have a fantastic week. Happy riding all. Thank you so much to Excel Moto for sponsoring this week's episode. That's excelmoto.com. You can check out all of the details in the written description as well. Thank you all. I'll speak to you all in the next one.